little about it. Then I have the honor of um, this great panel. Uh, they agreed that they would each would come in with what two, three minutes introductory remarks on regarding what they really are bringing to the table. That's what I would do first. I would go down the line here. Then I will engage them in question answer, maybe individually at the beginning, and then engage the others. So if you see me focusing on one person first, and then uh, the second and the third, it's, it's, it's one after the other, so do not worry. I'm not ignoring or underestimating any of my esteemed panelists. With that, I'd like to give the floor to Ambassador Gerald Feistein. Uh, who is the East West Institute Senior Vice President, former U.S. Department of State and Deputy Assistant Secretary for Near Eastern Affairs and former U.S. Ambassador to Yemen. So I guess the floor is yours, and I assume you're going to start with Yemen, please, sir. Thank you, Margaret. And, uh, and indeed, I will start with Yemen. Uh, just, you know, kind of to, to hit the wave tops uh, very briefly, and we can uh, certainly follow up with more detail. And, and uh, within the context of this panel discussion, uh, geopolitical dynamics of Arabia and the Gulf, I just wanted to make a few points. One, uh, to begin with a caveat, and that is to say that, uh, in my view, the, uh, the conflict in Yemen is primarily a civil conflict. It is not a regional conflict. It's not a proxy war. It is a war among Yemenis. Uh, and it's uh, part of something that's been going on for, for many, many years, many decades, in fact. So, but within that, within that broad understanding of the, of the, the real drivers of the conflict, there are, um, I think, two regional dynamics that we uh, absolutely have to address in our understanding of the conflict and our understanding of how to resolve and move forward. And the first is the one that people mostly focus on, and that is the competition, particularly between Iran and Saudi Arabia, or between Iran and the broader uh, GCC states, including uh, the UAE and uh, Bahrain. Uh, and, and, of course, uh, that, again, is, is focused on what I would say is primarily the uh, mirror images of the two that the two rival powers have of their security situation of their strategic situation and the, and the particular fear that the Saudis have of being encircled by hostile powers uh, loyal or, or associated with Iran and, uh, and the, the, the perception that they would have that Yemen fits within that, uh, that policy of encirclement uh, that the Iranians have been pursuing. So that's the, the one aspect of regional uh, dynamic. The other one that I think is relatively newer and in many ways uh, perhaps more concerning, and that is the extent to which Yemen has become an arena for competition in the broader uh, battle for dominance of the Red Sea literal. And so uh, looking at Yemen uh, not only um, in its position in the Arabian Peninsula, but um, as part of the broader Horn of Africa um, the competition that's going on, uh, between, say, Saudi Arabia and the UAE on one hand, Qatar and Turkey on another, uh, on the other, but even within the alliances between Saudi Arabia and, um, and the Emirates. And so, uh, and, and so uh, you know, that is going on, and, and I think that, you know, the request was that we, we kind of talk a little bit about how to move forward and, and what the, uh, what the, 
those areas that we know would actually come uh, perhaps to a more hopeful moment uh, in terms of the possibilities that uh, we may get into a, a period of de-escalating tensions um, uh, between the Iranians and the GCC states, uh, triggered partially because of, of the growing skepticism in the, in the Gulf about the reliability of the U.S. security umbrella, um, but, uh, but also uh, because there is an understanding that a conflict between Iran and the GCC states would be incredibly destructive and not in anybody's interest. And so we are getting into a place where, uh, where there is a, an opportunity now to really try to push through on that, uh, reduce tensions in the United States can and should uh, be trying to play a, a positive role in doing that. Um, I think by, by in some way facilitating a conversation with the Iranians, that would include uh, perhaps some relief on sanctions. So, uh, so that's one point on the, on the issue of the broader um, regional conflict in the, in the Red Sea. I think that, that similarly the international community has a role to play on uh, helping to, uh, to fence off Yemen from that kind of a competition and to re- reinforce the basic perspective and the international community position as reflected in uh, UN Security Council Resolution 2216. Uh, that, in fact, the international community sees um, uh, that Yemen, uh, the solution to Yemen has to be uh, the, uh, the existence of a unified, sovereign uh, Yemen capable of exercising um, uh, territorial control. And then the third element, uh, the third recommendation would be uh, the role of the international community in terms of helping the Yemenis build the institutions that would allow them uh, to exercise that sovereignty and to, uh, and to make clear uh, that they have the capacity to keep um, uh, from falling into the trap of being a battleground in, in regional competition. And so let me stop there. Uh, excellent. Fascinating. Can I just take up a couple of points with you? Of course. Obviously, everybody agrees, and hopefully everybody agrees, that this war in Yemen must end one way or another, and there are different players to have the responsibility to end it. But there is a misconception about why is this war taking place? Why did it erupt? I didn't hear you say anything about you know, the security of uh, Saudi Arabia as an initial reason for this war, that they feel that they were attacked, basically, and that they have to look after their national security. I didn't hear you mention any such thing. Is it because you don't believe it, or you forgot to say it? Well, again, I think that the important thing to understand about the Yemen conflict is that the Yemen conflict started because of issues that are internal to Yemen. It didn't start because of um, Saudi Arabia or any other external power. And this is a conflict that's been going on, in my view, for about 60 years. So, so to understand Yemen, you need to understand that internal, uh, that internal context of, of the conflict. But having said that, you're, you're absolutely right in the sense that I tried to make this point of, of Saudi Arabia's concern, its perception, strategic perception, that Iran has been engaged in an effort to encircle um, Saudi Arabia and the Arabian Peninsula with a ring of hostile powers. And that Yemen is the, is the last link in that chain of hostility. So if you look at the situation, in September of 2014, when the Houthis entered into Sana'a, uh, 
much later. One other point I would like to bring up with you, which is when you said that there needs to be a de-escalation of tensions and there are different... Uh, and we all do that. We always play a role in the de-escalation of sanctions, I mean, of uh, tensions. And you brought up the issue of sanctions as uh, uh, sanctions against Iran as probably to sweeten the deal with Iran to worry something on Yemen. Yeah, I, I think so. And, and, and again, I think that, you know, that to the extent that people are looking at ways to de-escalate tensions in the region, I think that there's been a general understanding, a general uh, perception that the low-hanging fruit in accomplishing that would be uh, resolving the conflict in Yemen. But that is the most immediate issue. It's one where Iran really does not have a strong strategic interest uh, as compared to Saudi Arabia. Uh, and therefore, if the Iranians decided that they wanted to try to be helpful in reducing tension, one easy way for them to do it, one cost-free way for them to do it, would be to be helpful in um, encouraging the Houthis to come back to the negotiating table and reach an agreement. To sweeten the deal for Iran. Uh, well, and, and, and what, what we would do to sweeten the deal with Iran would be to offer them some relief on the sanctions. All right. And I'd like that we discuss this a little bit later with everyone here because I think this may be a bit controversial and we'll talk about it. But in many, uh, Georgetown University and George Washington. What did I say? You said George Washington. Okay, George Washington University, Elliot School of International Affairs, Vice Dean, Kuwait Professor of Gulf and Arabian Peninsula Affairs and Middle East Policy Forum, Director, former United States Ambassador to Jordan, Australia, and Kuwait. I assume that you would want to come with your own ideas to the table rather than comments, so please go ahead and lay it to us. Before us, what what would like us to learn from you first before they engage in a conversation? Uh, thank, thank you very much. And uh, looking at uh, the title of the proposal right now about geostrategic uh, issues uh, in the Gulf of the Arabian Peninsula, the one that I focused on immediately was the situation uh, in the Gulf uh, between Saudi Arabia and Iran that was really uh, underscored with the uh, attack on the Saudi oil facilities. Preceded, of course, by a number of other incidents, attacks on tankers, seizure, seizure of tankers, also more recently one in action in the Red Sea, which was an Iranian tanker that came under fire. And all of this uh, represents a really deterioration, I would say, in the situation between these countries, moving them closer and closer to a more uh, military-type confrontation. Every one of the states in the region, I think, are quite fearful of things going in that direction. So uh, I was with a, a fairly large and interesting group of people, uh, one of many along with some Saudis, a number of these other Gulfs, also a number of American uh, political scientists who follow the region very closely. And we were assessing this, and the conclusion that we reached, which I want to bring up to you today, was that the consequences of there not being a reaction by either the United States or Saudi Arabia to the attack on the oil facilities in Saudi Arabia certainly had left the Iranians feeling that they had won, that they were now emboldened, that there was very likely to be additional incidents of similar nature, probably all that they could deny that they were a part of and that in the absence of anything that would 
setting, and of course the salaries and the lobbies are not likely to. Now I realize there may be some talks going on behind the scenes, but the United States is also no longer in the position of taking the lead for such an effort. Uh, we're very much discredited in the region, and I think that that was reinforced by our failure to in any way respond to the security commitment that everyone in the region believed we had towards Saudi Arabia. And so the question then is, so where are you going with all of this? Have you just now dismissed everybody as a villain having the ability to, to uh, open up a diplomatic front? And I have a suggestion, which was something we were asked to try to think of. There is an institution uh, in New York, the United Nations, where inside the United Nations, there's often a use of something called the friend zone. And this was used very successfully with Afghanistan, friends of Afghanistan. What does this mean? Uh, this means that in the UN setting, but not the UN official one, that you then have a, a, a room that's closed in which the parties interested to the dispute can come, even though they don't have diplomatic relations, don't talk to each other. There in that setting, Afghanistan that led to some breakthroughs. So what I'm proposing is that the parties that are rather intractable at the moment could actually agree to meet in this Friends of the Gulf setting in which you could talk about the issues. I don't think it will lead to a comprehensive settlement of all the issues in the Gulf, but if it can touch on some of the momentary major crises and lead to a back-off of the situation that we facing today, that would at least be a positive step in the direction of dealing with conflict. A couple of follow-up questions. Uh, you spoke of, um, you fear basically of the Iranians being too emboldened because of the lack of response. Uh, there is talk that uh, the Iranian revolutionary guards are really thinking that they would hit again in the same, on the same level, let's say, in a couple of weeks actually if they do not get released from sanctions. So, um, what happens from your point of view if the Iranians dare and do another attack such as the one on the oil facilities in Saudi Arabia? Well, that's exactly the idea that, that the group I was talking about uh, held in quite, quite considerable depth, actually, that there would be another uh, attack, whether it's through the Revolutionary Guard or another So it, I well, the point is, is that the, when that happens, then the, the victims, whether it's the Saudis, us, or another party, uh, are under more pressure to actually react in a strong way, which I think they may well do. You think the U.S. would react militarily in response, or would it be still sanctions, cutting the sanctions? Well, I can only give you my personal opinion. Okay. On this really yes. We have pushed sanctions to, to real limits. And they have had some significant effects. But the Iranians have learned to live with sanctions for a long time. And I don't think there's anything else more we can do is eliminate sanctions. It will stop that kind of behavior. Myself, that's my personal view. But whether the United States, uh, the president, is going to be the decision maker is very, very clear recently. Uh, will uh, be willing to take uh, tougher action uh, is actually beyond my ability. I'm sorry to surprise you, it's a little thing, but I'm going to ask your opinion on that. You are in the administration. I need your view on this because this is a, a policy issue and 
the strategic restraint that has been shown by the United States and by the Gulf countries in not responding to a very provocative attack uh, on Hubbeek. Um, really, you know, striking the Saudi heartland in a sense, the oil platform there, um, largest oil fields. Certainly, uh, we had a, an opportunity uh, and a justification to respond a couple of months earlier when our UAV had been shot down. Um, and that was just before Secretary Pompeo went to the region. And what he heard from the Gulf partners was, we really appreciate and are relieved that the president did not retaliate. Gulf countries, it won't surprise anybody, are uh, afraid of being hit. Um, they have uh, vulnerabilities uh, that, um, that their leadership is very aware of. And I think our sense is that if to attack Iran or respond in some way to the attack on Saudi Arabia, there would be a response in the Gulf. And then we're into an escalation that I think we have to be extremely careful about embarking on because that, we're not there yet. Uh, and I wouldn't minimize um, the situation in the Gulf and the, uh, the highly um, tense and dangerous situation that, that prevails there. But I think once we go kinetic against the Iranians, I think it's a new ballgame. So I think we have to be extremely careful uh, before we do that. I do believe that there is there are more sanctions coming down the road. Um, I say that because not every avenue of income that the Iranians have has been closed off. Uh, obviously, they're legitimate transactions, but not every uh, sanction, sanctionable activity has been stopped, so I think the sanctions are likely to get tighter before they get looser. I think the question that we're all trying to get to is at what point can we get around the table with the Iranians, and you know, from my point of view inside the administration, I feel that there have been very clear signals that we are prepared to do that anytime, anyplace, in other conditions. Um, the Iranian response to that has been in inadequate. To some extent, provocative. I'd love to see, and I think the president would as well, the secretary would love to see that situation change. And I don't think there's any intention to relieve the pressure until we get to the point where we are talking to them. But just to push you on this point, if you permit me, the issue is that if Iraq is involved in a big war attack, are you, are you saying that? Uh, the response, the similar response of the past is to be repeated. You don't think that's going to require any other response uh, and because you feel that the sanctions are good enough, whatever they do or attitude. I just wanted to be clear on this one because I don't want us to misunderstand you. Yeah, I mean, I can't read what's going on in the mind of the Iranian leadership. No, I'm talking about the U.S. leadership. The, the pressure is definitely there. It's being felt. I don't think there's, um, there's a desire on the part of our leadership to strike Iran. I think, again, there were pretexts to do that. We didn't do it. I'm glad we didn't. I think the Gulf countries are glad we didn't. I'm not dismissing Ambassador Ganim's point because I do think it's important. The Iranians do respond to force or shows of force, uh, force. And I do think it is our goal to have a deterrent capacity in Saudi Arabia. Clearly, that was not achieved with the initial flow of forces into Saudi Arabia. So we're putting more forces there. And the idea is to, uh, you know, create a very strong message that Saudi Arabia and indeed the Gulf are off limits uh, to 
guess as an opening statement uh, to Mr. Luther King. Um, I would just add three points that I don't think have been made so far that I think are important when we talk about the dynamics of the Gulf. Number one is the uh, very dynamic change that is going on inside the kingdom of Saudi Arabia that is led by the crown prince. Uh, I think whatever you you know feel about some of the decisions that he's been made on other issues, the change is real. It's beneficial. Uh, I think the Saudi population, by and large, is responding very positively to it. As a traveler to Saudi Arabia over the last uh, six years, and as someone who lived in Riyadh, I can see the change very eyes, and I think it's a positive one. I think that the region is going to benefit from the opening inside Saudi Arabia. Most of us have felt it's long overdue, and I think it's going to benefit the region, the Gulf region, and the broader Middle East. Number two, uh, look at the uh, closer relations between Israel and the Gulf. Uh, I think that that is something that, that needs to be considered when we talk about, particularly in the context of Iran, there's a more common set of enemies now. What's been interesting to me is how much our diplomacy, both the Gulf countries, now involves discussions about the outer uh, outer edges of the Gulf, Somalia, uh, Libya, of course, Sudan. We have a special envoy for Sudan. Spends a lot of time in Khartoum. Spends a lot of time in Abu Dhabi. Spends a lot of time in Riyadh. And so those of us who have been working on the Gulf um, are, you know, trying to develop our expertise in some of these other issues. And that, that's a reflection of the fact that the Gulf is expanding, particularly in the UAE and Saudi Arabia, but in the other countries too. You can cer- certainly look at Qatar expanding their reach uh, with their wealth and, and, and trying to influence uh, the developments in other countries that are, are normally outside their, their domain. Is that good or bad, do you think? Well, it's good if, 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 if it's coordinated with us. Uh, we don't want the countries in the Senate. These are sovereign countries. They have their own foreign policy. They have the right to pursue their own interests. But we have strong interests in how uh, the evolution of Sudan takes place. For example, this opportunity now with a civilian government and prime minister who's, uh, who we're working with. Um, and so we want to work very closely. We, we're not in favor of countries going off and doing their own thing. Uh, we want to be coordinated with the Gulf on these other issues. Thank you very much. I will introduce you now properly. Um, and then uh, this was Mr. Timothy Linder King, U.S. Department of State, Bureau of Eastern, of Near Eastern Affairs, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Everything Gulf Affairs, former U.S. Department of State, Deputy Chief of Mission at the U.S. Embassy in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. And we will get back to you, of course, and I want you to speak about, uh, of course, Lebanon as another sphere of influence. Um, I will now go to Dr. Abdullah Mahmoud, National University of Singapore Middle East Institute Visiting Professor, former Qatar University Gulf Studies Center Director, former University of Cambridge Gulf Research Center Director. Please uh, tell us what you're bringing to the table and we will be open for a further discussion. Um, thank you, Dr. Abdullah. Good afternoon. Everybody, and thanks for the National Council for the Invitation and uh, my good friend. as you all know, 
seeing lots of development, economic development, social development, uh, political development, etc. Um, these states, while they're doing that, they are almost like um, islands in a very rough sea of uh, hungry and angry people. And basically, um, here you have a very wealthy, prosperous state. But around them, the whole region is in turmoil. And I don't think it takes anyone uh, ever to understand that you can never guarantee your stability and security when you live in that rough sea. And this is where the Gulf states are, uh, are at the moment. So, um, that, keeping that in mind, I think we also have to uh, consider what we just heard uh, throughout the days of the deliberation that the challenges that these states are facing are enormous, despite what they are. We are seeing economic challenges because of the oil prices uh, uh, changes uh, and because of the geopolitical uh, 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 conservation of the oil and, and oil. Uh, we are seeing also changes uh, in terms of, or challenges in terms of finding employment for the young educated people that they are uh, uh, that they have uh, brought up. We are seeing challenges in terms of social cohesion. We are seeing challenges in terms of environment. We are seeing challenges in terms of uh, security and stability uh, in the region. It cannot continue. This, this, this islands of prosperity, they cannot continue in isolation from uh, the, the, the larger environment. I mean, all you have to do is look around you, if you live in the Gulf, and see what's going on. Yemen, Iraq, Iraq Syria, uh, Somalia, Sudan, uh, Lebanon, Iraq. The whole region is in turmoil, and the Gulf states cannot just think that they can um, continue to live in the way they are if these problems around them are not resolved. That's one thing. The other thing is, these islands of stability and security, at the same time, They've created their own regional integration, their own regional organization that has helped to a very large extent in ensuring the stability and security. However, we are also seeing cracks within, not because of outside making, because of their own making, because of the GCC they themselves are creating that, which makes it difficult for them to face the challenges on one hand, but it also makes it more difficult for them to, uh, for their international partners uh, to, to, uh, to help them if uh, and when, when they wanted to. Um, so that is another, uh, if you like, a, a challenge that we have uh, to ourselves. I, I also just add something about, uh, you know, you want to stop me? Oh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, about Iran uh, as well. Um, obviously, from day one, it was obvious that there was no military solution to the war. And the cost of that war and human, uh, and also in terms of financial uh, cost, that could have been a Marshall Plan to transform the whole region. And this is what the region needs. It needs a, 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 a Marshall Plan to transform the region and to move beyond the existing animosity, the existing uh, conflicts that we have to a different level of cooperation and integration, and also of learning how to exist with each other. We cannot 
Iran learn how to live with that. Yes, we have issues with Iran. Yes, we have uh, uh, issues with our neighbors. But we can let that go beyond the normal diplomatic ways of trying to uh, find ways to uh, resolve our own conflict in a more peaceful and civilized way. And I stop here. Thank you very much. Let me try to do this now by fine-tuning some of what uh, uh, was said. And I, maybe I should take it region by region, but maybe Yemen first. Uh, Timothy, do you think uh, what was proposed by Jerry Feinstein, sorry, I have to say it for, for Feinstein, sorry for Feinstein, um, do you think what was said by him uh, about sweeping the deal for Iran to do, to deliver on Yemen is something this administration would think about by lifting sanctions? Or partial sanctions or by telling the, the Europeans to so turn off to the Europeans to go ahead and provide the, um, the, 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 the way out uh, through, you know, bailout, a limited bailout. Uh, our view is that Iran doesn't have any constructive role to play in Yemen, and they're not playing any constructive role. On the other hand, they're playing a destructive role. Uh, they have, uh, you know, armed and trained the Houthis in a, in a So uh, we're anticipating coming afterwards. Um, 
so what's, you know, when you guys are talking about something going on, maybe behind the scenes and somebody is paying them to, 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 to get this, uh, to get started with certain process, you know, I get creative from this, you know, you think, what do you say now? Well, I, I, I certainly would never, ever think of uh, disagreeing with my friend Tim Wonderful. But, you know, I'm sorry. Here's the thing, you know, and, and uh, I, I think that Tim is right. I mean, he's certainly right about the way he has uh, portrayed Iran's role in this Yemen conflict until now. And the issue is, uh, I think, as Tim said, you know, at the right moment, uh, that it may be appropriate to uh, to reevaluate the way uh, the way we're um, uh, looking at Iran and looking at Iran's potential as a constructive versus destructive uh, element. And the question would be is whether we are at that moment now. Uh, so uh, you know, there's several things. I mean, one is. Uh, that the uh, the idea of some kind of a dialogue between the Gulf states, particularly the Emiratis and Iran, is um, one of the more open secrets in the world right now. Well, yeah, I'm just thinking of Yemen. Well, I suspect that Yemen is part of the conversation. Um, there uh, is certainly some uh, reason to believe that the Iranians are quietly encouraging the Houthis uh, to to de-escalate their own uh, conflict with Saudi Arabia. That some of the positive elements of what we've seen in the last few days and weeks uh, in terms of uh, Saudi Houthi dialogue are in fact underway with the encouragement of Iran. Well, what, what, tell, us, tell us about that. I have this is, uh, it's not a secret. Um, the, the fact of the matter is that the Houthis declared that they were not going to uh, fire or, or um, uh, into Saudi Arabia. Uh, the Saudis have responded by saying that they would suspend uh, air attacks in Yemen. And that seems to be holding. So who's, about, who's, who's the facilitator of this? Well, the Saudis and the, and the Houthis, I mean, yeah, frankly speaking, there's no requirement for a facilitator. The Saudis and the Houthis know how to talk to one another. Mm-hmm. They've been talking to one another for probably a thousand years. Um, and so, uh, and so uh, you know, the fact of the matter is that there have been off and on uh, conversations. Uh, I think that the conversations are on again, and they are showing some sign of, uh, of uh, progress. And uh, I believe that the Iranians are certainly encouraging the Houthis along those lines. Skip, what do you know about that? Well, I don't know. Thank you. 
thinking about Yemen uh, before I move on to other things. Other, I like, I mean, I, I heard you when you said the Marshall Plan, I understand. That is important. When would that, I mean, basically, are you saying it should happen before or as part of reaching an agreement, as, 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 as part of, uh, of uh, facilitating a resolution or thereafter? Uh, in a way, answering your question, I think we have to think and ask ourselves a question. Uh, and I want you to think about this. Who do you think the Houthis would want to have partnership with after uh, in, in a post-war Yemen? Just ask yourself a question. Is it going to be Iran or Saudi Arabia or the Gulf states or the United States? I think it doesn't, we don't need to think very hard about it. Iran, uh, Yemen in a post-war Yemen needs development and needs a lot of money, the Marshall Plan, if you want. And that Marshall Plan is certainly not going to come from Iran. It's going to come from the region. It's going to come from international partners. And I think the Houthis are very desperate. We, in somehow, in our own way, try to push them towards uh, Iran and label them with Iran. Of course, there was some Iranian uh, uh, support. But it's over, over-exaggerated to explain some Uh, 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 let 
a little bit in, or uh, if you don't talk to them, what happens next? How do you leave? What do you want to up to next? We have a dictated who the Iranians would bring to the table. That's really their call. I think we're eager to do that. I think it would be very positive for the region. Uh, I don't know what other signals that we might send um, other than the very, very clear ones uh, that we have sent about our keenness to, to, to dialogue. Again, I would point to the fact that there has been restraint exercised on our part in not retaliating against some very significant provocations, uh, direct strike from Iran on, on Saudi Arabia, then blamed on the Houthis. Very curious. Um, the Houthis had nothing to do with that attack. So I consider that, the way I read that, was rather a, an arrogant blunder on the, part of the, on the part of the Iranians, thinking that they could get away with that. Um, and we saw through it very quickly. I think the Houthis may have seen through it uh, quite quickly as well. Um, so, yes. say that, did you just answer my question when I asked you about your willingness to sit with the revolution, to, to talk with the revolutionary guys? Did I just hear you say that you're willing to sit with them? I said we are willing to talk to, you know, the Iranians who come to the table. Really? Yeah. Despite the fact that... I don't believe there's been any proclamation from our leadership on the American side saying who it has to be. Call is there, the door is open, let the Iranians walk through it. So even though they are... I don't think we're checking names at the door and, and all that. I mean, bring, bring them forward. Even though they are on your terrorist... They are a designated terrorist organization for good reason. Oh my God, I hope there's some journalists in here. This is big news. <laughs> all right, what do you think about that, Skip? Well, let's just say that if it was Suleimani... Yes, I'm not so certain that we would be very happy if we were willing to sit down at the table. But I do hear what, uh, what Kim is saying. I'm not trying to contradict him. I think the administration has actually made a very bold pronouncement. And they did it for strategic, diplomatic, and political reasons, which was to make us look reasonable and the other party unreasonable. That's not an unheard of diplomatic ploy. Interesting, it's a ploy. Well, I, I, I hope that Tim is right. Uh, you know, there's, uh, <laughs> there's nothing more you can say. Uh, I think it was an unfortunate uh, decision to, to, um, to sanction our agency as an entity because my experience is that it actually does make things much more complicated to try to talk to them. Uh, but I think the decision is made uh, that, that we're not going to uh, check names at the door. I think that's, a, that's the right decision. That's a good move, and um, we should uh, welcome it. Uh, a 
Does the sanctions relief come before the uh, meeting, or does it come after the meeting? Do you think it's go to the source here? Can you set, set the record straight? Since we're talking about no, I wouldn't say more than what has been said. I would just, uh, you know, repeat that um, when our overtures have been made, they have not been responded to in a favorable way. And, uh, I mean, all, all we can do is, is keep the door open and, and, and you know, encourage the Iranians to walk through it. Uh, and I think that's the way you get into all the issues on the table. Um, you know, the, the, the Jikboa, um, uh, one of the flaws with that whole engagement there was that it didn't deal, it didn't get the issue of Iran's behavior in the region. And that was dis, you know, highly dissatisfying to our Gulf partners. And as a result, uh, I mean, I know that we uh, talked to uh, the Gulf about getting into that conversation about Iran's behavior, but it, it, it hasn't happened. And so uh, Iran has continued and even escalated, um, you know, it, it, it's more malign activity, let's say, in the region. So whether you're looking at, um, you know, Iraq or Syria or Lebanon or Yemen being, the, you know, sort of the full hot spots, uh, they're as active as ever, if not more. So that, that, I think, is really the heart of the issue, is, is you know, that is, in our view, a destabilizing uh, effort, the relationship that they have with Assad, the relationship they have with militias in Iraq. Do, do you think they are weakened in their regional aspirations because of the sanctions? Or, for example, I take Lebanon and the relationship with Hezbollah. Uh, do you think that the Iranians and the Islamic Republic of Iran is weaker in uh, its uh, regional ambitions now because of the sanctions? I think, or, uh, I think the, the ambitions are still there. I don't see any, uh, we don't see any change in their ambitions. Uh-huh. Their ability to carry out some of those uh, ambitions is highly constrained through, uh, with the pressure that they're under. Take, take Lebanon as an example. Are they constrained with their support of Hezbollah? Hezbollah feels that they're still ruling in Lebanon. So how restrained are they there? say that um, the cash flow is what it used to be. That, that hampers Hezbollah's activities, but in our view, Hezbollah has far too much influence in Lebanon, and it's destructive of the state and its institutions. Just, uh, I, 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 I just have to say this. You know, when you're in the Atlantic War, as three of us were, and it still is, uh, and you really have time to kind of read back and think through things. One thing I've learned since I've been a professor in now for three years is to start looking at documents that go back to the time of the, uh, the Iranian Revolution, and you would be stunned at the number of U.S. documents on the classified in which changing the behavior of Iran was paramount to 
created paramilitary forces in Lebanon. So Hezbollah intervened through Syria, uh, or the Houthis in Yemen. Like you're saying, this is the rightful right. No, I didn't say that at all. We didn't accept that behavior. We need to respect the fact that they are there and that they have uh, their own security concerns. And in fact, the countries in the region need to understand that they have to be arrangement amongst them that, that recognizes that. Arrangement to recognize what? That they have the right to have paramilitary forces in the southern states? I didn't say that. Well, then let's pay what you said. I said that they have a reason for being engaged in the region, whether it be economics and trade and politics. And that is going to happen no matter what we do and others that are there. But, but what they're doing now is not acceptable. That's a fact. Okay. Uh, let me just move on because I, uh, this, is, this is almost an hour of fantastic conversation. And I think I do have a little bit more time, but I'd like to say thank you. Um, so let, let me um, let me take stop a little bit because the prototype of, of Iranian success is really Hezbollah in Lebanon. This is the big accomplishment of the regime. So can we just quickly touch on because there's, there's a big event for events uh, taking place in Lebanon. Can I take your opinion uh, quickly, all of you, as to how you view what's going on and what should be done about it? And, but okay, of course I'm referring to the wonderful celebration from my point of view, uh, the events of people on the street claim their rights. However, the issue of Hezbollah control is still right there and behind the scenes and in the face of all those people who want change. That's where I'm approaching this. Go ahead, John. No, uh, I would say I think that your, uh, your, your point is absolutely correct, Margaret. I think that one of the things that people are looking at, what is different about Lebanon today as opposed to where Lebanon has been in the past, is one, the fact that the, um, that the demonstrations, the protest movement, is um, not confessionally based. It goes across all of the confessions in, in Lebanon. Everybody's out on the street together. And the other thing that's extremely interesting about this is that perhaps for the first time, um, criticism of Hezbollah is on the table. Uh, and the fact is that, that people are willing to stand up at this point and say, Hezbollah, you bear responsibility along with everybody else for everything that's gone wrong, with everything that's wrong with the government, with everything that's wrong with the economy. And this is a, a new and, and extremely important, I think, um, a change in the way Lebanon has, uh, is uh, being played. And the issue, you know, right now we have a protest movement which is... Uh, basically demanding that they want a new government. And that's a good thing. Uh, I don't think that anybody can, can disagree with them about, about the, the need for a new approach, whether it's technocrats or, or whoever uh, might come in. The issue, though, is have they thought through what the implications of what would be? What if this government goes? What if Saad Hariri goes? What if General Howard goes? Um, what is it that would replace it? And, and that part of the conversation is as important, and I can say from my experience uh, in Yemen and during the Arab Spring there, that, that where these um, popular protest movements have failed is their inability to think through those questions. And, and the understanding that if they do succeed in, 
forcing the, um, the collapse of a government, they've also got to think about how they succeed in organizing the day, the day after. Yeah. 
us to Europe. They were taking their own country, and they want better government. And they're going to they go to reward one way or the other. Let me see. What is the U.S. policy on what's going on now in Lebanon? I think, from, you know, from our point of view, we see a genuine uh, outpouring uh, in, in, uh, on the streets in Lebanon. And in some ways, it's a surprise that it's taken this long because things have been deteriorating for some time. Uh, as I would see, you know, see it, the stranglehold of Hezbollah has gotten stronger. Uh, there is a legitimate issue, uh, as Kip noted, of corruption. I think that features in each of these sets of street demonstrations, whether it's Iraq or, or Algeria, um, people are tired of, of the uh, inefficiencies, the inability to get things done, poor services, unresponsive government. So, Strongly, and uh, uh, particularly the last trip of uh, 
it's and so we end it here because they're talking about probably a, a new way of uh, filling in the gap, the absence of the United States. They they feel that there is a, a sort of withdrawal of interest, of American interest, and the redefinition also what security uh, means in the relationship, uh, new relationship between this administration and the other partners in the Gulf. That that definition of security is that we do the red line straight to Iran. You do not touch our soldiers. You do not, uh, you know, uh, uh, do anything unacceptable of the nuclear. But then when it comes to provocations against Saudi Arabia, against the United Arab Emirates, well, that is your war, not mine. You look after yourselves. You know, you, 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 you protect your own back. We're not going to be in it with you. So I think maybe which one should let you choose one of those. Go ahead, Jeremy. Just, just choose one. Yeah, choose one, and then you can come to the other. Choose which one is the one I press first, and then I'll go to the other. Come to the next one. Well, well let's talk about let's talk about Turkey first, because um, uh, I think that uh, that that is important. If it is an important part, uh, again, I, I think that uh, uh, that uh, Skip and Tim touched on some of the internal GCC. Uh, dimensions and Turkey very much plays into that, of course, because of its relationship with Qatar. And, and as, as you said, and as we know, um, uh, some of it has to do with the ambitions uh, of Erdogan uh, and his vision of a Turkey that is once again um, a regional power. Uh, and uh, and uh, therefore, to do that. And it also has to do with an ideological perspective, which is. Uh, the relationship uh, to the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, which certainly colored uh, Turkey's uh, interest in, uh, in Egypt, uh, in Libya to a certain extent. Uh, but, but, uh, but beyond that, of course, you also have an economic interest. And so uh, we talk about, uh, when we talk about the Red Sea competition, uh, that really is an economic competition. The Turks have been uh, very active in Somalia, have created a very strong base for themselves in, uh, in Somalia, base of support uh, for themselves in Somalia through their economic uh, intervention. And that has drawn, to a certain extent, a response from the UAE and from others who are, uh, who are concerned and have been uh, working to try to establish their own, uh, their own presence and, and uh, that side of the Red Sea. So, um, so all of these things are going on. It drives a lot of the internal competition within the GCC states uh, between Qatar, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Bahrain, uh, in particular, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and has also uh, drawn uh, this broader regional competition. I, I wanted to say just one thing, and it could be either in the China-Russia context or the, or the GCC context. And the other thing that I think that we're seeing that's happening that's really important and we've seen it over these last several years, is the rise of this young generation, younger generation of leaders in, in the region. So you have Mohammed bin Salman, obviously, in Saudi Arabia. You have Sheikh Tamim in Qatar. You have um, uh, Mohammed bin Zayed in, in the UAE. And, and each of them, uh, I think, has a vision for the role that their countries play in the region and globally that's very different from where the fathers and the grandfathers were. And a lot of what we're seeing in terms of these competitions, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, 
said quite correctly, you know, the engagement in Sudan and Somalia is a reflection of their sense that, that historically they have been seen as the financiers of other people's foreign policy and that they're not willing to play that role anymore, that they want now to develop a foreign policy on their own that reflects their own vision of their country's role in the region, um, and which is you know, something that, A, is inevitable, B, I think has something to do with, with what they have uh, seen in terms of declining U.S. engagement, declining confidence in the U.S. umbrella um, uh, now, uh, and also uh, internally a collapse within the Arab world of the traditional leadership. So the Egyptians are not playing the role they used to play. Obviously, the Syrians aren't playing the role that they used to play. And in some ways, the Gulf states are moving into a vacuum in the Arab world uh, that exists and are exerting influence and exerting priorities for themselves that they didn't do before. And that plays into this whole issue of competition. Very interesting. Very interesting. Skip to you. The question that you asked is, is a fantastic one, and it's one that I could spend hours talking about, and, and Jerry has given a very good preliminary remark, and what comes to my mind is that we in the United States seem to forget that while we have enormous uh, ability to intrude or influence to the, to the region, I speak uh, immediately about military, uh, but also the Control events. Things happen in the region. They happen in the region because of the region, because of the characters there, because of the situations there. Yemen, a lot of are in Yemen. And we have to deal with them. And for me, as a, as a person who's been in the Foreign Service for 36 years, I was very proud of the leadership role that I thought was brought to the table. And we talked with our friends and our allies try to convince them to go a certain way, which we thought would be bring stability and progress. Uh, sometimes it was a democracy, but different words. And that we had an influence, and we were able to at least attempt to channel things in a certain direction. The decisions of the last administration and this one have withdrawn us from that role. Whether it's something as specific as pulling troops out of Syria, which is a very specific thing, or just simply not using our influential ability to convince the Saudis, for example, not to go into Yemen militarily. Uh, just, I'm just plucking examples. Uh, and when, when we were not there to, to be a partner, and when these countries in the region lose confidence in the relationship with us, which is a security relationship, then they're going to be able to take actions that they feel they have to take in their own
watch the Russians uh, got into the, the Syria the way they did, then confronting them, it's different if it's in the beginning when they're not there. It's quite different when they have troops everywhere and basically <laughs> they, that they're established. And so uh, there is erosion, really, on our presence and on our ability to deal with things as their influence in the region grows. But again, I don't want to leave it that, on that such a negative because I think we have to say that even with all, I said earlier, and we have talked about it, the United States is still the country that many of these nations look to for security. Even if they lose a little bit, we have lost some confidence in us to be to be around because we're not responding in a certain way. But I do agree Governor Bryant that the Gulf states did not want necessarily to go down that road. But the truth of the matter is that uh, they still look to us. They do not see China as a substitute. And they certainly don't see Russia as a substitute. And we have to do that. And Donna, do you feel the same way? Can you address the two points I uh, put to the table for some proxy competitions? The proxy war is the competitions and uh, Russia and China, the three actually. I also want to echo what Jerry said earlier and uh, to say that look, what is really happening in the region is uh, we have uh, a fall of the Arab order, uh, as it were. The Arab League uh, has become very weak. And we have also seen a collapse of, uh, of, of that order that has allowed certain interventions, and now below the Arab League, we also have another sub-regional organization that has cracks at the moment, whether we like it or not, but that's the issue, and that's a, that we have another counterpart. And that order is also becoming weakened. And when you have uh, a weakened uh, uh, regional order, you are bound to have intervention uh, from other regional countries. You know, politics is like nature. It doesn't like nature. And the other thing is that has been mentioned is, you know, the traditional Arab countries like Egypt and Syria and Baghdad have become weakened. And the center of gravity has moved to the Gulf. It also moved to the Gulf at the time when you have these young, ambitious uh, uh, leaders who want to change and, 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 and uh, the way that things have been done in the past by their, uh, their parents. And it came at a time where there was ambivalence from the United States in terms of its policy towards the region. It's not just now, it's happened before. Uh, you know, Obama was talking about the pivot towards Asia. Um, he even said, you know, that uh, Saudi Arabia and, uh, and Iran have to learn how to divide the region between them, or something uh, to that uh, extent. Uh, so, um, we, uh, you know, these messages actually read by the leaders in, in the region, and they want to take the matters to their own hand. So um, the other also policy that we should not, never forget is that the United States has always been asking for burden sharing in the region. So they've always been asking for the Russians and the Chinese and, uh, uh, and the Koreans and so on to do some burden sharing in the region. So what is wrong if these people are coming? Uh, now I'm just kind of you know, curiously putting that, uh, that question. If the United States is asking for burden sharing, well, here, here they are. Now, the Gulf leaders also, um, you know, decided that they cannot rely totally on the United States. That, that's not to say that the United States is still uh, the most uh, strategic, important power uh, and, and uh, partner of choice in the region. But they also want to have the buy insurance uh, certificates from, from the others, so they want to have um, you know, the relationship with, with China, which, you know, the trade relationship is growing, 
uh, I'm very comic. Uh, relationship is becoming uh, deeper. But China is never going to replace the United States. I don't think Russia is never uh, also is going to replace the United States. But they can see in Russia uh, uh, a strong partner that can actually stand with its uh, allies when sometimes they don't read the same thing uh, uh, from the United States world. Uh, at times when it is needed, as an ally, it wasn't there. Thank you very much, Timothy. I think that uh, I'm going to ask you to address the same thing. Is the same, same three points, please? Uh, unfortunately, you have expressed only your personal point of view because we really want to hear about where this administration is going and how it's thinking and uh, with more you guys um, at radar or comfortable with, what are the parameters? And uh, you said that you're going to tell us is going to be extended. It's the same special that I heard that you're um, always open to asking I do think that, um, you know, the rise of the young generation of leaders is, is quite striking. They do have uh, their own visions for their own countries, their roles. They're, they're really putting their countries on the map regionally, and that can be a very positive thing. I think when we see the Gulf countries working across purposes, either against our interests or uh, against each other, the, at a time when there is a big threat from the outside. These countries could benefit from pulling together. Um, there are other ways that they could uh, address their differences, uh, their concerns about Muslim Brotherhood or other you know, relations with Turkey that, um, well, that could be done in, in, in a constructive way. Um, I, I do think there is uh, there clearly is great power competition. We, I think, as the U.S., have to be very careful uh, about opening the door to the Russians and the Chinese and fully agree with the, comment, the comments that were made earlier that we are the partner of choice for all, uh, all of the, certainly all of the Gulf countries. Uh, there's no doubt about it, but these are relationships that are not on autopilot. They have to be managed. And they have to be managed through you know, personal engagement, through visits, um, uh, contact from our embassies, etc. I mean, these things cannot be just left to, uh, left to develop on their own. situation out there. And so our presence uh, is very important. Uh, our, our, you know, the visit scope that we have of, of people to our leadership to these countries, congressmen, women, the military, uh, the, cult, the whole cultural side, uh, the people to people uh, exchanges are still very important. Um, you know, thrilled that there are 10 universities in Doha and Brookings and, and the Emirates, uh, NYU, and, you know, these kinds of things show the breadth of the relationship, and those are important parts of, of building for the future. So um, when we talk about Russia and China and you know, the telecommunications challenge that the Chinese are bringing to the table, we are warning these countries to be very careful about getting into a uh, technical relationship with the Chinese. It means you're getting into a relationship with the Chinese government in ways that you may not think, uh, or you may think are going to be beneficial to you, but they have major costs down the road. So it's all part of you know, getting at the point of the importance of continued U.S. engagement and leadership. Gentlemen, it's been a great pleasure engaging with you on uh, a very uh, wonderful conversation. 